It might be a long one. All right, I think I turned the speaker on. Um, this is more for recording. I see symbols oh, there, yeah, but. Yeah, you're good. Um, <clears throat> all right, so uh, before we turn to our passage, um, I wanted to ask you some questions this morning to think about to set us up. So, what would you do? If the highest governmental authority of your country had obtained their position illegitimately and they were not truly qualified to be in that position. Um, and I have some good news and maybe some bad news, depending on how you look at it, about that question. Um, I think part of the good news, I'm not referring to the United States of America and the present situation of our government. Um, I realize in a way, I guess that question's kind of passed a little bit, but uh, uh, a lot of people were raising those kind of questions. But uh, I also think it's good news that even if this were to happen to us, it's not the first time in history that people have dealt with that kind of problem. In fact, the passage that we're going to look at today Israel is in that very kind of situation. Now, maybe some of the bad news about it is it doesn't describe how to do a, uh, a coup that we're to follow. There actually is kind of a coup that takes place, but as we look at the Old Testament narratives, they are narratives, they're describing what happened, right? So they're not necessarily prescribing how we are supposed to carry out if we're in that same situation. But... Um, what I do think is really encouraging as we look at this is we're going to see how God works in what are very, very dark times. And what I hope to make very clear to you is there were years where Israel did not know there was a resolution coming. A very small few did, but the majority did not. And therefore, it would have been a very dark and very discouraging time. Now, I guess I also thought about this question, too, um, as we we're about to look at the text. If I were to ask you, who is the most wicked woman that you can think of in all of Scripture, who would you say? Okay, I, th I thought Jezebel is probably the name that most people have come to mind. And I would argue that we're not talking about Jezebel directly, um, but a relative, um, and she's maybe as bad, um, if not in some ways worse than Jezebel. So, without any further delay, let's go ahead and look at 2 Kings chapter 11, where we'll read about a very, very dark time in Israel, and about a very wicked woman who gets put in charge of the kingdom. So when I was here a, a long time ago, I talked about 2 Kings, and I think I left off maybe 2 Kings 3 or 4 or something like that. So actually when I left, I, I taught Sunday school at our, our church several times, and I kind of just kept going in 2 Kings. And so I got to 2 Kings 11 and beyond, and and this was one of my favorite lessons that came out of that time. So perhaps you'll make some connection with things we talked about in Kings and Second Kings when I was here on Sunday nights. But 
Here it's at, we're going to read verses 1 to 3 to start. And there will be a lot of reading today, but I'm going to start with 1 to 3 and kind of break it up and work through it. So we see here in verse 1, it says, When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Now what's not clear from that, I just wanted to clarify, is we're talking about the southern kingdom. We're talking about Judah here. When we read this, it kind of sounds like what might be the north. But this is actually the south. It says, But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death, and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years, while Athaliah was reigning over the land. All right, so to kind of help with some of the context, I thought it was important as we look at this uh, to uh, review some family connections. But um, the point we're going to see here ultimately is that we need to prayerfully trust and obey God during the darkest of times, knowing that he is working all things together for good and his glory. So we see that God protects his people during the darkest times, and we see this here in verses 1 through 3 as he preserves the king under wicked leadership here. We see in verses 1 through 3, he's preserving the rightful king, the heir of the throne of David. Uh, He preserves even though there is extremely wicked leadership. So looking at the circumstances surrounding this new leader, I wanted to explain the family connections. And... It's kind of deep, so I'll try to go quick. But um, if we were to go back to 2 Kings, which we won't turn there, uh, 8.26, we'd we'd see that Athaliah is the granddaughter of Omri. And if you remember, he is the father of... Do you remember? I thought I heard it. He's the father of the wicked king of the north, Ahab. Right? So um, she is the daughter of Ahab. Now, um, I was just double-checking this this morning. I do not find in my quick record um, of the scripture passages a direct mention that she is the daughter of Jezebel. It does say repeatedly she is the daughter of Ahab. And as you know, many times kings may have had multiple wives. But um, It may be that she's the daughter of Jezebel. I just couldn't find a scripture verse that said exactly that. Um, It does say, though, repeatedly, she is the daughter of Ahab. So she was married to Jehoram. And what can be confusing in the kings is sometimes they take the full name like Jehoram and they condense it down to Joram. And, And then her son, or Jehoram and Athaliah's son is named Jeho uh, Ahaziah, or it becomes Ahaziah, a shortened form, as we see here in uh, 2 Kings 11. We're going to turn over to 2 Chronicles 21, though, because I just want to walk you through some of the events that happened around this time that kind of set up how tragic and serious the threat is to the line of David during this time. It is extremely, extremely delicate situation. So look with me at Second Chronicles. I, I might have said Corinthians. I meant Chronicles if I said that. Um, Second Chronicles 21. 
where we'll, we'll see some background and eventually in 22, it kind of joins up to be the parallel passage to what we see here in 2 Kings 11. But looking at verse 4 of 2 Chronicles 21, we'll see about her husband, Athaliah's husband, Jehoram, and what happens with him. Now, he is the son of a man who was a good king in Israel. His name was Jehoshaphat. You've heard that name. He was a good king, but he um, had a problem. Do you remember what the problem was with Jehoshaphat? He had kind of one fatal flaw in, in his uh, time as king. Do you remember what the, the most critical flaw he had? Who did he ally himself with? He was an ally with Ahab. So that actually was a huge part of his problem. Even though he was overall a good king, he was too close with Ahab, and what happened as a result is his son, Jehoram, marries a daughter of Ahab, Athaliah. So we have some background here, Second Chronicles 21, verse 4 through 6. It says, Now when Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father, that's Jehoshaphat, and made himself secure, he killed all his brothers with the sword. And some of the rulers of Israel also. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, right? We're talking about the south, not the north. Um, He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, that's the north, just as the house of Ahab did. Why? For Ahab's daughter was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So there we have it. Um, Jehoram, who was Ahaziah's father, Athaliah's husband uh, was a wicked king and he killed his brothers. I mean, we understand, humanly speaking, the basic motivation why you kill off your family if you're in a royal family is you don't want the competition, right? You don't want there to be another person who claims the throne um, and deposes you or kills you, right? So he proactively decides to kill his brothers. So there's a set of people wiped out. Well, but it gets worse. Um, Judgment comes on Jehoram, and this is announced through Elijah the prophet. And if you look at 12, 12 to 15, there's a letter from Elijah about this. It says, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father and the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot as the house of Ahab played the harlot, And you have also killed your brothers, your own family, who were better than you. Behold, the Lord is going to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and all your possessions with a great calamity. And you'll suffer severe sickness, a disease of your bowels, until your bowels come out because of the sickness day by day. So there's this pronunciation of judgment on Jehoram for his wicked destruction of his family. And we see his sons die, if you go on to 16 and 17. It says, The Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabs who bordered the Ethiopians. And they came against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions found in the king's house together with his sons and his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons, also called Ahaziah, in 2 Kings 11. All right, so um, Jehoram's children are 
destroyed. He's left with only one son there, Ahaziah. So we see then that he himself dies in 18 to 20 there. Um, and basically in, in, in those verses is telling you that he dies. It says in verse 19, this is very tragic. It says he died in great pain um, and his people made no fire for him like the fire for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years and he departed with no one's regret. What a terrible epitaph. Um, no one was sad to see him die. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the king. So we have Jehoram. He's dead. He's killed his brothers. His sons have been destroyed. The only one left of his sons is the youngest, Jeho Ahaz, it says, or in 2 Kings 11, Ahaziah is his only son that's left. Um, but it's going to get worse still. So let's look at uh, going down in uh, chapter 22. It says, The inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah his youngest son king in his place. For the band of men who came with the Arabs to the camp had slain all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, began to reign. How old was he? Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And note, his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. And how did Ahaziah do as a king? Well, it says he also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. Why? For his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. He did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. So Athaliah is this wicked queen mother influencing her son Ahaziah to do evil, and eventually he's going to die. So uh, as we come down to uh, verse 8, we see basically Jehu. And um, what you have in 2 Kings 9 and 10 is Jehu becomes king of the north. And if you're familiar with Jehu, you probably have read him in your personal devotions or you've heard messages about Jehu. But Jehu is given the kingdom of the north and God gives a commission to him and basically says, go wipe out for me because of judgment on the house of Ahab. Go wipe them out. And he does. And he does a very thorough job. And, and uh, uh, we see perhaps even he goes in some ways a little too far with some of his zeal to wipe people out. But he wipes people out and included in that list of people that he destroys is Ahaziah. So he actually um, is uh, bringing Ahaziah to death, the king in the south. Um, and wipes him out. So we see that in verse 8. It says, It came about when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers ministering to Ahaziah and slew them. He also sought Ahaziah, and they caught him while he was hiding in Samaria. They brought him to Jehu and put him to death and buried him. For they said, He is the son of Jehoshaphat, whom the Lord, uh, who sought the Lord with all his heart. The point is they buried him. They gave him a respectable death, uh, a conclusion to his death because of his grandfather, Jehoshaphat, was a good man. So they therefore gave him a burial. So 
What we see here is we're looking at 2 Chronicles 22 and 2 Kings 11. We see very clearly there's a power vacuum. Because all of these men that are the rightful heirs to the throne of David have been destroyed. So what happens like any not-so-good woman might do? But uh, Athaliah steps in to fill the void. Look at verse, verse 9. So there was no one of the house of Ahaziah to retain the power of the kingdom. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw her son was dead, verse 10, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring of the house of Judah. So she's going to fix this problem. She's going to take over. So as I was mentioning in my introduction, she is taken over as the highest authority in the land uh, of Judah. She is not a son of David. She is not a legitimate heir. She is not a rightful ruler. But she presumes that and takes the seat of authority herself. And going back to 2 Kings, because this is where we'll finish. I appreciate you going with me through 2 Chronicles. There was some helpful background to understand. Because it's very desperate situation. There's essentially no heirs of David left. Except we see in verse 1 of 11, there is... There is uh, I'm sorry, in verses 1 through 3, we see there's an exception made. So, it says in verse 1, again, going to 2 Kings 11, Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw her son was dead. She rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. But Jehoshaba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death, and placed him in his nurse, uh, and his nurse in the bedroom. So they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. So we have one baby child, male descendant of David, rescued while all the rest are destroyed. So in thinking about that other question that I asked you about the most wicked woman in all of Scripture, think about what this woman is doing. Not only was she counseling her son to do evil against the Lord, following in the ways of Ahab um, and all that the king of the north did, she goes beyond that and is eliminating her own grandchildren. I mean, how many women do you think would do that kind of thing? This is an extremely wicked woman. Now, we see this kind of behavior with men in the kingdom and all, all the time. We see it a lot, and we read about some of them, like Jehoram doing this. Um, what's, what's the problem? They want power, right? So one of my uh, history professors used to say uh, when I was at uh, Maranatha in college, um, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. I know she's quoting somebody else who was, uh, had said that earlier, and I don't remember the original source. But we understand, power corrupts. And she's an extremely corrupt woman seeking for power. So, we have, though, in spite of this, the preservation of the seed of David. But part of what I was trying to help you to see is how many people, and I'm not looking for the exact number, but just making the point. 
How many people knew about this initially? Very few, right? The nurse, the Jehoshaba and her husband, very few people knew about this. So if you're a general Israelite at this time, and if you are a genuine believer in the Lord, and you're following the Lord, and you understand the promises that God has made to David and Abraham and all these things, and that David is supposed to have a son on the throne, what are you thinking during these six years? It's desperate times. You, you're thinking God's promise has been broken. You don't have an understanding of how God might fulfill what he's promised to do. This was very dark, very discouraging. And yet we know, because we know the rest of the story, God was working. So, I know we haven't even gotten to the end yet, but this story, this recording of what really happened back in, in the southern kingdom during this time, should serve as an incredible encouragement to us in the darkest of times when we don't see how God could possibly resolve something. He's working in a way you don't know. He's working in a way you don't see. He is going to faithfully fulfill his promises. He is going to keep what he said. Even if everything you see tells you it's not going to happen, he's going to be faithful. It is an incredible challenge to us to trust God when we don't see how things are going to work out. Now, I spent a lot of time on verses 1 through 3 and really technically verse 1. So we're going to have to kind of hurry to get through the rest. But... What I want you to see is this preservation of this king is really rescuing the covenant that God has made. Um, in 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 16, we won't turn there, I'm, I'm confident you're familiar with it, is where God promises David that he's going to have a son that will rule on the throne. Now, ultimately, we understand through being church-age saints and further revelation that ultimately God fulfills that through Jesus Christ. And while on earth there is a temporary um, not filling of that, we know ultimately Christ is going to return. He will rule on earth and will ultimately fulfill what God has set. But they didn't know that. They didn't understand. It was very dark, very discouraging times. But... It's also common as we look throughout the scripture that we see this crisis of the seed that would be promised. Remember, way back in Genesis 3, 15, God promised a seed of the woman that we understand ultimately refers to Christ would be the one that would crush the head of the serpent, right? And we know he does that in the, the cross and resurrection. He accomplished the defeating of Satan and his purposes and his work. Ultimately, Christ did defeat him and will finalize all of that victory in the coming future. But we see this crisis of the righteous seed throughout the scripture. Um, if you understand with Cain and Abel, what happens with Adam and Eve is they, in a sense, think that maybe Cain is that promise. They're looking for that promise right away. 
And, and as they have these children, the names are given. I've gotten a man from the Lord. She's, she's thinking maybe this is the seed that will come. But ultimately we see that Cain is wicked and Abel is righteous, right? So we see the righteous line that's going to go through Abel, right? But what happens? Cain kills Abel. But what does God do? God raises up Seth, right? And so there is a uh, godly line through Seth. We see Abraham is God's chosen person, and through him the promise is going to come, right? But they get into their, he gets into his 90s, and she's in her 80s, and they haven't had any children yet. And Abraham's confused. How is this going to work out? Are you going to make my servant Eleazar to be my heir? Is that what you're going to do? Or maybe it's the handmaid Hagar by which this promise will be fulfilled. And yet, God fulfills and gives them Isaac, the son of promise. But then, Isaac and Rebekah are married for 20 years. Do you realize that she was barren for 20 years? She didn't have any children. So there was concern again. What, what happens? Isaac prays, and she has twins. And Jacob is then that one. We see in Egypt. What happens in Egypt? What's Pharaoh try to do? Wipe out all the males. Again, it's an attack on the seed that was promised. We see Haman. You remember Haman with Esther? What did he want to do? Wipe out all the Jews. So we see Herod in the time of Christ trying to kill all the children under two. Constantly we see this threat throughout the scripture attacking the seed ultimately that God promised which we know would be Christ and yet Christ came and ultimately then what happened to him he was crucified right but that was all part of the plan and God raised him uh, from the dead he, he arose and ultimately fulfilled the promises of what God had been promising with the seed and ultimately we look forward to the day when he's going to come back and rule on the earth but they were in desperate times hopefully that's clear but it should also be an incredible encouragement to us in the darkest of times God is working so I want to click you, quickly walk you through sections four through section 4 through 12 where basically we see the proclamation of the king happens at the end of this section and it's basically a transition back to the rightful heir, the seed of David, in Joash, the son of Ahaziah. So, just going to read this quickly and make a few points and, uh, and then probably pretty quickly move on here because our time is short. But he says, Now in the seventh year of Jehoiada, I'm sorry, now in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of hundreds of the Karaites and of the guard and brought them to him in the house of the Lord. Then he made a covenant with them and put them under the oath in the house of the Lord, and he showed them the king's son. He commanded them, saying, This is the thing that you shall do. One-third of you who come in on the Sabbath and keep watch over the king's house, one-third also shall be at the gate, sir, and one-third at the gate behind the guard shall keep watch over the house for defense. Two parts of you, even all who go out on the Sabbath, shall keep watch over the house of the Lord for the king. Then you shall surround the king and each of you with his weapons in his hand, and whoever comes within the ranks shall be put to death. And be with the king when he comes out and when he comes in. So basically Jehoiada is the high priest. 
He is the husband of Jehoshaphat, who is the one that rescued Joash. And he is the one that's leading the effort to protect this rightful heir, the son of David. And he is orchestrating, essentially, a coup or a takeover to deplace uh, or to get rid of Athaliah, who is not a rightful leader and should not have been the queen. And so he is building loyalty among the soldiers, essentially, to prepare for this transition which is coming. So you can understand how this would be a very delicate operation. And ultimately, we'd have to see, even though it's not specifically called out, the hand of God working to bring about this transition. Because you have to have loyalty. If word gets back, right, you're in trouble, you're in danger, and... and Obviously, Athaliah had no regard for anybody, so she would have probably had no problem taking out the priest um, if he was standing in her way. So there had to be secrecy, there had to be loyalty, and ultimately we see that they're loyal, um, and they do this. He makes them swear an oath. So ultimately, it is, I think, uh, sovereign working of God here, but also, I think, many people in Judah recognized that she was not the rightful leader and that this son of David was so there's agreement they work together they provision the soldiers they plan this out and then we see they uh, sort of get some things organized here in verse 9 it says so the captains of the hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded and each of them took his men who were to come in on the Sabbath and those who were to go out on the Sabbath and come to Jehoiada the priest the priest gave to the captains of hundreds the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. The guards stood each with his weapons in his hand from the right side of the house to the left side of the house, by the altar and by the house, around the king. Then he brought the king's son out and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. So, we see this carefully orchestrated transition. Now, my simple take on the timing of this, and he talks about those going out and those coming in, um, to put it maybe in our modern terms, it's like a shift change. So a shift change, like at a factory, is when you probably have the most people there because you have the people that are done with their shift, getting ready to go home, but the people who are getting ready to start their shift are there. And that's my take on what's going on here. He's seeking the time when he has the most possible people there to help protect the king in this transition. And interestingly, they give the weapons of David here, and I don't think that these were really critical for fighting. It's probably more symbolic. It's symbolic of the fact that they're restoring the rightful heir of David on the throne, and that the priests and the soldiers are in alignment with what they are working to achieve here. So then we see in verse 12 that the proclamation is made, the king is revealed, they recognize his royalty, they put the crown on him, and interestingly, it talks about they give him the testimony. What, what's the testimony? Okay, the, the law, the scripture, right? What's the significance of giving king the king the scripture? I think there's a couple things you can argue. One, the rightful, uh, the right to rule is given by God. 
But I think it's also significant that the king himself is obligated to follow the law and not only follow it himself, but a huge part of his job was to enforce it. So the word of God was critical for a king. So the priest doing a great job of reminding the king and the people of their obligation to the Lord as revealed in the word of God. So they have their king back. But let's look uh, verses 13 to uh, 16 here and see how she is removed. We have actually 13 to 19, the purification of the kingdom. But let's start with uh, 13 to 16. It says, When Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she came to the people in the house of the Lord. She looked, and behold, the king was standing by the pillar according to the custom with the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoiced and blew trumpets then Athaliah tore her clothes and cried treason treason and Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of hundreds who were appointed over the army and said to them bring her out between the ranks and whoever follows her put to death with the sword for the priest said let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord so they seized her and when she arrived at the horses' entrance of the king's house, she was put to death there. So, we see the removal of the wicked queen. She, she hears the noise. She comes running. She sees the king. And she screams, treason. Which is very ironic. Because she is the one guilty of treason, right? She is the one that wiped out the royal seat. She is the one that replaced the rightful heir with herself and was wrongly in that position and yet she's crying out treason treason it's such a illustration of how wicked people behave right they scream and cry about wrong when they are so guilty of the very thing they're screaming about a very common thing for a wicked person that's what she does so then she is executed but they don't want to do it in the in the house of the lord so they take her out and she's killed at the entrance of the horses. Does that, that kind of death remind you of any other woman and, and, and how she died? There's some similarity, I would say, to what happened to Jezebel and how she is uh, put to death. But we see the end of this wicked woman's life. Um, and interestingly, no mention of a single person Stepping to her defense. Now, maybe at some level, in some places, there may have been people, but clearly, the vast majority of people recognize she is not supposed to be the queen and that this boy, this Joash, is the rightful king. And they support the priest, Jehoiada, in the action of restoring him to the kingdom. And again, I just make the point that most people in Israel had no idea that God was preserving this king. It was very dark and desperate times. And yet, God was working and preserves a remnant. He preserves the seed and restores this rightful son of David to the throne. And then we see a renewal. Look at verse 17. They kind of renew their commitment to the Lord. In verse 17, it says, Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they would be the Lord's people and also between the king and 
the people. So there is this rededication. You, you see this multiple times in the Old Testament where there's times where they rededicate themselves and it's a great thing. There's been a dark period of six years and, and technically even longer than that because Jehoram was a wicked king and he followed the house of Ahab. So, and that rule was eight years plus Ahaziah's son was a year. So, I mean, you really have at least 15 years where there's been very dark times in Israel. So there's this renewal led by the priest, which is a great thing. So then what's a logical outcome? If you've rededicated yourself to the Lord, you're committed to following Him, what's one of the logical things you would do next? Purification, right? You're going to purify yourself, you're going to purify your life, you're going to purify your nation. So that's what they do. Verse 18 we see religious purification. So verse 18, All the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars, his images, they broke in pieces thoroughly and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. So there is this destruction of this false worship. It's a logical outcome of their renewal and their commitment to the Lord is religious purification. And... We see the royalty is placed on the throne, verse 19. He's protected. It says he took the captains of hundreds and the Garites and the guards and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and came by way, uh, the way of the gate of the guards to the king's house, and he sat on the throne of the king. So the royalty is restored. And then we see, lastly, as we finish up here, we see that there is now peace in the kingdom. We have peace. After purity, after the, the preservation of the king, the proclamation of the king, the purification of the kingdom, now we have peace in the kingdom. Look at verses 20 and 21. It says, So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet. For they had put Athaliah to death and the, with the sword at the king's house. Joash was seven years old when he became king. Now, I, I hope this doesn't uh, come across the wrong way, but i got to tell you, the older I get, the more and more I love it when it's just peaceful and quiet. In, in the workplace, I do IT work. Uh, so what my job is, a lot of times, is dealing with people that are unhappy about stuff or fixing things that are broken. So sometimes people say to me, well, how's work going? What, what I love to be able to say is, it's been quiet. It, it's been calm. I, I love calm. I love quiet because then I can get work done and, I, and I'm not interrupted. It's not chaos, right? Well, that's what they experience. Quiet. Calm. Because the wicked ruler was removed. The rightful ruler was restored. There is a renewal of their commitment to the Lord and there was therefore some peace that came as a result of that. Peace and quiet is a blessing from God. And that is an indication of what's going on here. It is a blessing that they enjoyed that peace and quiet. Now, I would have to be careful and say, Jesus himself doesn't promise that we're going to have a completely peaceful life, right? If you live perfectly righteous and and we're perfectly obedient, which none of us are. But even if we were, we are not going to have a perfectly peaceful and quiet life. But there are times 
where God gives us seasons of peace and calm and sometimes those are a clear indication of his blessing and we should rejoice and be thankful for that. That is what they were experiencing here. They had been through very dark times. And so I hope you can see with me that this passage is an incredible encouragement. And I would make a few applications um, that I'd say about this and, and thinking about it at the end. What, what good came out of this? I mean, there were some pretty dastardly things that happened here. Well, one of the things that I think came out of it in context of what they were dealing with was in, in relationship to how Jehu had been used by God to wipe out the house of Ahab, there was with this, even in Judah, a final break, in a sense, of the influence of the house of Ahab over the southern kingdom. So this provided a good transition away from the influence of Ahab. It also resulted, as we discussed, a renewal of their commitment to the Lord. There was a renewed commitment um, and, a, and a determination to eliminate idol worship in their land. It also was a good time for the priest, the one who was responsible for um, carrying out God's commands about the temple and, and teaching people the law, that person was able to have direct influence over the king. In fact, um, we see as, as it goes on in 2 Kings with uh, his life, that this king, Joash, does right <laughs> as long as the priest was alive. And in fact, this priest lived an incredibly long life. I don't remember offhand exactly how many years, but it was well over 100 years he lived. And he had a tremendous influence on Joash. So there was a period of time where the law of the Lord, therefore, was having a major influence over the highest leader of the land. And that had a good impact. And we see the fulfillment of God's word. Judgment against Ahab and Jehoram was carried out. And ultimately, what I hope I have made clear and is our application, our primary application we take away, is we should be encouraged at God's sovereign preservation of his people in the darkest of times. We have experienced, in a way we are experiencing some dark times, but we should be encouraged regardless of what happens. God is in control and we can trust him, even if we don't see a means by which he can work it out. He will. He'll take care of us. We should trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this very encouraging portion of Scripture. And it's amazing as we look at Scripture like this, and, and there's others. This is so incredibly dark at parts of this. And yet, what an incredible turnaround you made happen. I, I know in one sense it's six years, and, and in a way that's kind of long, but um, in a way it's short. Um, given our lives are much longer than that. Uh, we, we thank you for how you worked in their situation, and we pray that you would help us to trust you in our situations. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.